if we learned anything from the Freud episode, it's that cocaine as a science works. Absolutely. Hi, and welcome to Meet Your Heroes. I'm Audrey. And I'm Elliot. And this is the show where we ignore the very good conventional wisdom to never meet your heroes and instead get up close and personal with the lesser known legacies and real life bad behavior of some of history's most notable and beloved people. Happy decorative gourd season. You started last week's episode like that? It's still decorative gourd season. I should say happy spooky season then. Because we're officially in October. Yeah, I mean, I think that that kind of sounds like a mug you would buy at a home goods store. Happy spooky season. Live, laugh, love, everyone. Yeah, except it would be more like um, die, haunt, spook. There we go. I like that one. Okay, maybe I should make that a a, a cup. Trademark. Yeah. That's a verbal trademark. That stands. <laughs> That's legal. That's legal. No one take my die, haunt, spook. <laughs> the pumpkins have been popular. Yes, update on the pumpkins. Raccoons have not stolen them yet, but squirrels have come after them. Yeah, squirrels have started. A little nibble here and there. Bigger than the squirrels. So just, yeah, little damage, not much. The pumpkins are bigger than the squirrels is what you're saying. And the raccoons too. I I was under the impression the raccoons would steal our pumpkins, but so far it is just squirrels taking like a little tiny bite here and there. I mean, if you could see... Raccoon paw prints mm-hmm. around the pumpkin scene. Yeah, I feel like the pumpkin's just a bit heavy it for is. some raccoons. It's going to be a collaborative effort. It's going to take like a team of raccoons. It's even better than one raccoon, to be honest. It's if I planning. could see some coordinated pumpkin stealing from any, I don't know, a gaggle, a murder, a group of raccoons. Mm-hmm. A flock. Yeah, what is the collective term for the, for A mischief of raccoons, perhaps? That one feels most fitting. Yeah, it does. And speaking of mischief. Were we? I mean, I guess Die Haunt Spook is also mischief. (laughs) It's true. Uh, I feel like today's hero uh, had some uh, characters who got up to some mischief. I feel like, yeah, that was probably his goal in a lot of ways. It seems like it. So should I tell the people who this week's hero is? As always. This week's hero is Charles Dickens. What do you know about Charles Dickens? He wrote some books. Many. Uh, some got to read at Christmas. Others got to read in high school English. Okay. Uh, mostly about mischievous street urchins, or rather, even if they're not mostly about, a lot of mischievous street urchins, I feel like, play uh, some some major part in a lot of the books. A lot of street people. Street urchins? Yeah. Like from under the sea? Like an urchin? Like Little Mermaid? Sea cucumber urchin style? Or is that a term that people use for... Yeah, that's a thing. Street urchins. Like little ruffians. Little scruffy newsy type folks. I feel like ruffians, I understand. Newsies, I get the reference. Urchins? I feel like urchins is a, is a valid term. You've never heard this before? No, it sounds super offensive. What? Like offensive to sea cucumbers? What do you mean? It just sounds like you wouldn't say that about a human being, (laughs) calling them an urchin. I feel like that's a totally, like it's antiquated. Yeah, that's probably why it feels offensive. That's so strange. (laughs) Okay, so 
Okay, so people who are very adept at surviving, thriving, creating mischief in public. Yes. I mean, the author. I think everybody has heard of at least one of his books. Mm-hmm. I know very little about the man. Okay. Um, well, I have read zero of his books, and after this week, I know a lot about the man. So maybe we should between us, mix we, have, it up. <laughs> we have one person's worth of knowledge. That's great. That's correct. Okay, so Charles Dickens was born February seventh, in of eighteen twelve, in Portsmouth, Hampshire, which is in southeast England. And I don't really care about the location. I care about this February seventh. That's why it's time for Audrey's astrology corner. People born on February 7th are Aquarians, who are progressive individuals with a keen intellect and an inherent sense of justice. It is impossible for them to witness injustice or cruelty without speaking out. Above all, they are prophets with a vision and a burning desire to change social attitudes and right wrongs. Let's see. Let's see if he writes some wrongs, changes some social attitudes. I think it's safe to say that he tried to right some wrongs or at least bring attention to social injustices in a lot of his work. So we can give him that that much credit. But we'll find out if the rest of it holds true, which you know it will because at this point we have established this is <laughs> airtight hard science. scientific right. process. <laughs> and there, yes, wh- how, how dare I even question? At this point, yeah, don't waste your time. He was the second of eight children. And his family moved around a bit during his early childhood because his father was a clerk in the Navy. In his earliest years, his family was solidly middle class. But by the time Charles was 12, his father's um, enthusiastic spending habit had gotten the best of him. Enthusiastic spending. What What does that mean? They lived beyond their means. Got it. Well, his father did, not the children. They were children. He's a clerk in the Navy? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. What does he spend that money on? I have no idea what one would spend all their money on in the 18-teens. No idea. I feel like it's fancy dogs. I don't think so. No Racing dogs. dogs. Nope. My guess would be food, would be trying to, like, have a lot of fancy clothes. I'm going to picture fancy racing dogs. Okay. You're welcome to picture that. I just don't think that's accurate. Yeah. You know what? It's not going to stop me. Go for it. Okay. So so he's got this racing dog habit. (laughs) Yeah. Family's or he's twelve. Charles is twelve. His family uh, is bankrupt. So his father, his mother, and all of his younger siblings are forced into a debtor's prison. All of them. That was the custom. Yes. If Yikes. the head of the household was in debtor's prison, all of or there like, the kids in jail too. Well, so it wasn't like a, a prison. I looked this up. They're more like. Um, communities or like they're big buildings. You're not like locked in a cell. You're locked in a compound where you have to work off your debt. That's still rough. It's not great. Throwing no. the kids in there. Not Ch- going to school. They're not going to school. Uh, to be fair, not a lot of children went to school in the 18 <laughs> teens anyway. Okay, fair. Charles does not go to this debtor's prison. He's old enough that he goes to live with a, a family friend And then another family friend, and then another family friend, and then, like, another family friend. And he's able to avoid this debtor's prison because he is, at this time, old enough to get a job. (laughs) So he can get a job in a factory as a 12-year-old. Oh, of course. Yeah. Right. And um, so he wasn't sent to the debtor's prison because he could help his family pay off the debt. And so the people in the debtor's prison were like, you're not going to come here and eat our food, take up our space. You're going to go to this warehouse where you're going to, like, put this 
blackening polish on boots and pots. Yeah, go work in the factories. Wow, okay. Because he was 12 at that point. Yeah, that's working age. As you could imagine, this sort of experience for a young child, a 12-year-old, it leaves a mark. And you can see a lot of sort of themes or experiences that Charles himself had in his writings. Again, apparently, because I didn't read them, but that's what all the sources said. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Again, all these street urchins. It makes sense now. He's couch surfing uh, when he, you know, in between shifts at his factory job at 12 years old. Can imagine you write what you know. Exactly. Fortunately for him, his grandma dies. Why what? Leaves his father some money. On the promise of this inheritance, his father gets out, well, the whole family gets out of debtor's prison. Ah, okay. So there we go. Dickens family making their money the old-fashioned way. (laughs) Right. Waiting for grandma to die. (laughs) Yep. So Charles thinks, okay, time to get back to school. I was in school before this. My parents are out of jail. I don't have to do this child labor bullshit anymore. It's time to, to get my life back on track. Thanks for looking up. But his mom is like, no, absolutely not. You're making enough money that you are more valuable outside of school than you are if you were to go get an education. Wait, the, the parents are telling him that he has to keep working? His mom is. Because, get this, he's making a total of six shillings a week, which... I, yeah, I was going to say I have no idea how much that actually Yeah, means. I don't know how to convert that, but uh, judging by all of the context clues and all of the articles I read, it's not much money at all. And his mom is still like... You don't you don't get to go back to school. Give us your money. Okay, so he's uh, being told he can't go to school because it's more valuable for him to work whatever the child labor minimum wage <laughs> is at the time. Exactly. I could see how he could resent that. Sure. It puts an immediate and lasting bad taste in his mouth. At, at first, just for his mother, but as we'll come to find out for women more broadly. Ooh, yeah, okay. And if you have read any of his articles or any of his books then you might recognize the impact this had because uh, all of the mother figures are often epi- like epitomized by this quote-unquote hideous, neglectful attitude. So if you did read his stuff, maybe that rings true. I, I also can't vouch for that. Sure, I'll vouch for it. Why not? Fortunately for him, his father convinces his mother that Charles does indeed deserve to go to school. And for the next year or two, Charles gets to get back into the, the swing of it. But at the age of 15, again, because he needs to contribute to his family's income, he's forced out of school. But this time, he he has enough education. He gets to work in a law office. Wait, what happens? What changes? Didn't they have this inheritance? Why does he have to leave school? I think the inheritance only got them out of jail. But they also had eight children. And <laughs> it's a hard knock life in the 18 18- Teens. Yeah, so a couple of years, they look at the inheritance. He gets pulled from school and back into the workforce. Yeah, but this time, he's just like an errand boy for a law office. I, maybe he's like filing stuff. I have no idea what's happening in these law offices in London at that time. When he's 18, he meets a woman named Maria Biednell, and he falls hard and fast for her. Her parents disapproved of the courtship so much that not only did they deny him her hand in marriage— they actually sent her to Paris to keep them away from each other. Wait, so he meets this girl, and her parents react by just sending her to Paris? That's better in their mind than her marrying a gopher at a law clerk or at Got a it. law firm. So it was <laughs> yeah. So he he was just a nobody working, working scrub. Yeah, but not for long. I bet they're going to regret. They came to regret that decision. Oh yikes! Okay. 
by the time he's 20, despite all of these challenges and the rejection of his first love, Charles somehow grows to be a man of confidence, great self-confidence, and is at this time, and then for the rest of his life, described as, quote, energetic and someone who threw himself into all of his activities with fervor. These activities included things like attending the theater every day. He was working as a freelance journalist. He was trying to be an actor and uh, was really trying to perfect the skill of mimicry. He's working at this law firm and then he starts attending the theater every day? Yes, he has to have a passion outside of filing, I guess. He's just going to plays? Mm -hmm. He loves it. Can't get enough. The stories, the narrative. This is not like Broadway. This is theater in the 19th century, which was basically a cheap, frequent form of entertainment. Okay. He decides that he really likes theater, and that's going to be his ticket out of poverty. He wants to become famous. So at one point, he has his audition scheduled with a very famous director and a producer. But he ends up missing the appointment because he got very sick. Big bummer at the time. Turns out to be pretty all right, because within the next few months, his first piece of fiction was published. He's writing it as well at this time. Yeah. So he was a freelance journalist writing about law and legal proceedings in London. He's got some connections at newspapers. He's got a bunch of free time on his hand. He does not have a wife. Sure. That's yeah. Yeah. But he's also but he's writing fiction as well. That's um, yeah. That's his his preference. He enjoys writing fiction. He enjoys storytelling. He rises pretty quickly to fame within this journalistic and literary world in London. I don't know what the competition looked like, but he got to the top pretty fast. Well, okay, good to know. He's he's a good writer. Like he he knows what he's doing. Everybody recognizes it. There's, you know, now frequent daily or weekly weekly publications that people can consume. It's uh the printing is possible. You're getting a lot more circulation. It's it's a to, it's a good time to be an up and coming writer. It's the technology of the day. Yes. So it's 1835. Dickens is invited to contribute to a publication that was being edited by a man named George Hogarth, and he strikes up a friendship with George, and he ends up spending a lot of time at his house. And at this point, Dickens is 23 years old. And he ends up falling in love with George Hogarth's oldest daughter, Catherine. And he's spending time here because he's one of these up-and-coming writer types. Yeah. But he falls for the rich girl. Yes. You know, you you pay visits, you drop in, you hang out in the parlor. Uh, Based on all the Jane Austen books I've read, (laughs) that's what happens. Yep, yep. In 1836, they marry. And within a year, the first of their 10 children is born. Yikes. (laughs) Yikes. <laughs> yeah. But this does not slow Charles down. In fact, like one way that he mitigated having a family uh, and making sure it didn't slow him down was to have Catherine's little sister, Mary, move in with them to help take care of his, his you know, wife and child. She's 17. His wife's like 20 or something like that. And Charles strikes up like a strange infatuation with her. With his wife's younger sister. Yes. His his pregnant wife's younger sister. His wife who just gave birth to their newborn's younger sister. What kind of strange infatuation or relationship is this? Yeah, let me tell you. So Mary moves in. Ostensibly, she's there to help with Catherine. But unfortunately, within the first few months of moving into, into their home, 
after the three of them, Catherine, Mary, and uh, Charles, return from a play, Mary collapses and dies in Charles' arm arms, like in their living room. Wait, what? Yeah. So this destroys Charles. Is this the sister or the wife? The sister. Oh, okay. Okay. Got it, got it, got yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> The sister. She dies. She's 17. Some unexplained at the time, but looking back, it could have been some sort of like encephalitis or meningitis, like some major brain infection that just took her out pretty fast. Struck down under prime. Yes. Charles ends up not being able to write for a long time. He and his wife move to a country home for a few months to grieve. Uh, And when he does start writing again, Charles ends up writing Mary into a number of his books as various characters. Like, she is always there. Okay, so just, he's got to be kind of successful at this point. Because anybody who's like, they they move to a different house to grieve. Mm -hmm. That's like, you got to be pretty well established at this point, I imagine. Yeah, I think he's got consistent work. Okay. Yeah, okay. Wow. I don't think they go far. He can submit his papers to the paper. All right, so he's living that writer money life, grieving in his other grieving house, comes <laughs> back, and then starts writing this girl into all his stories. Yeah, not only that, but he uh, continues to wear one of Mary's rings for the rest of his life, and he keeps a locket of her hair. What? Yeah, it just seems like a strange overreach of the relationship. Like, you can be sad your sister-in-law dies. Doesn't that seem just a bit, I don't know, inappropriate? Yes. Yes, I would say if uh, if your sister died and I started wearing her hair daily, <laughs> yeah, that would, that would seem strange. A few months after Mary dies, Catherine has their second child. And this child is a daughter. And Charles insists that they name this daughter Mary. So now they have their second borns, a child named after Catherine's dead sister slash Charles's weird infatuation. Sure, sure. Throughout his 20s, he's writing prolifically for periodicals, for papers, and also writing like a number of his own novels. We're not going to talk about those because everybody knows that part of his life. It would be a snooze fest to talk about them. The books are kind of a snooze fest from what I understand. They're yeah. like laborious, right? And and they're b- laborious in a very particular way. So I don't know if you got to this fact, but one of the ways that this would work is that his big novels mm-hmm. would not be published as novels. No, no, no. Yeah, they'd be published as like chapters. They'd be published as chapters and each chapter would go in like the new edition of whatever magazine. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so... That's how Oliver Twist was written. And so it ended up being like 45 chapters. Yeah. And he gets paid each time he puts out a new chapter. And so if people are reading it and it's going along, he's going to drag this thing out (laughs) as long as he can. It's a paycheck. Whenever he finishes a story, it's done. So some of these stories just like drag on and on and on. The pacing is not the strong suit. No. I mean, he's lauded for his, his ability to... Um, write about in a very realistic way. Like his realism in his writing is the thing that gets him a lot of notoriety. He can describe the minutia of daily life because he makes money for every word he writes. <laughs> yes. If you ever wanted to read hundreds of hundreds of hundreds of pages of very detailed descriptions of what life was like around this time in the century, then yeah, there you go. That's what. If you're looking for like a page turner, though, not not your go to. No, and but. He is a um, primary source of entertainment for so many people that he, more so than most writers of the time or any writer of the time and even writers of the past, is hugely popular. 
wildly popular in ways that authors were not popular historically, like contemporaneous to their writing. Like a lot of people get famous after they publish a book or after they're dead. He was famous in real time. Yeah, he's not the Shakespeare type who's showing up hundreds of years later still. You're talking about somebody who's a celebrity. A celebrity, yes. The other thing he's doing, in addition to writing constantly, is impregnating his wife all the time. Like year over year, by the end of it, they have 10 children, nine of whom survive. Got a system. A lot of people who, like Charles Dickens, espouse family values, write about, you know, the family structure, you would think this would be good news for them. They've got this big bustling family. They have the financial means to support it. He's famous. But he was really bummed out about having so many children. He was bummed out about it? Yes, because, again, it it is quite the financial undertaking. But also, the thing that he really disliked was how much pregnancy, childbirth, post and postpartum life changed his wife. He does understand how this keeps happening, right? Yeah, yeah. That is absolutely his fault. Okay, okay. Just making sure. I mean, I'm not sure, like, where our understanding of human physiology is at this stage. <laughs> yeah, but, it's not a secret. Okay, got it. The reason he doesn't love this is because as his fame skyrockets... He is expected to do things like travel, attend events, show up places, and he's also, by society standards, expected to have a wife who can be a perfect homemaker and a hostess, like on a whim, whenever required. And I don't know if you've ever had 10 children. (laughs) (laughs) You know, not recently. And an absent, frenetic husband. No, not that I can admit to. Or postpartum depression. Not, Not that one either. But it's hard to be a hostess on a whim if you have any one of those things and she had all three. Okay. Yeah. I imagine if you're told that your job is to have 10 children and care for them and also to throw parties for other people, (laughs) uh, you're not super thrilled. No. And the more Catherine sort of like fell into this life that was required of her and didn't do it up to Charles' standards, the more controlling he got. You know, years into their marriage, he becomes obsessively controlling. He believes that his wife is unable to properly take care of their household. And he would do things like take her shopping to the butchers or whatever and talk to her like she was a child. Like, I can't believe you don't know what this cut of meat is. He's like berating her in in like the butcher shop at the fruit stand. Just... How dare she not understand these things? Like the right cut of meat to get for the party coming up. Yeah, and I'm sure she actually did know. It's just that he was so specific and controlling. He ends up also becoming a huge stickler for neatness. And his daughter wrote, quote, He made a point of visiting every room in the house once each morning, and if a chair was out of its place, or a blind not quite straight, or a crumb left on the floor, woe betide the offender. But he's doing house inspections every morning in this place where 10 kids live. Yes. To look for crumbs out of place. Yes. While also then babysitting his wife on her grocery trips. Yeah, that's that's a little bit much. It it doesn't get better from there is sort of the unfortunate thing. Things only get worse and worse the longer they're married. He gets very bummed out that his wife has gained weight, which again is a normal thing for people to do 
over the span of their life, especially if they have 10 children. Yes. He also is upset that she's spending all of her time cleaning, doing it wrong, and then also not giving him enough attention. After inspecting the house every morning? <laughs> yes. What the fuck? So, one historian wrote, So strained were the couple's relations that Dickens' ex-publisher, Frederick Evans, and colleague William Wills refused to visit his home. This, said Evans, was because they, quote, could not stand his cruelty to his wife. When asked by a friend what he meant, Evans explained, quote, swearing at her in the presence of guests, children, and servants, swearing often and fiercely, he is downright ferocious. Yeah, God, sounds like a huge dick in front of the the company, too. I know. That's the part. Like, put on your best behavior for strangers. Yeah, can't you pretend to be nice while, the, while somebody's here? <laughs> no, he couldn't. And as you can imagine, Catherine, who is already depressed, caring for 10 children, essentially a servant in her own home, <laughs> get, goes into a deeper and deeper depression. By the time the two of them are in their 40s, it has become clear that he's treating his wife the way he wished that he could have punished his mother when she was the same age in forcing him to work in the factory. Ah, uh, okay. That, this connection back now makes, makes sense. Yeah, we're closing the loop here. Mm-hmm. The more and more Catherine begins to resemble his, like, who his mother was or what his mother looked like or how his mother acted when he was young, the crueler and crueler he becomes to her. See, this is the thing. If he would have just gone to therapy, <laughs> yeah. he would have gotten cocaine and right. been told that it was about his mother, which in this case, broken clock is right twice a day, would have been correct. That's right. Like you get to Freud, he gooses you up on some coke or better yet, he gooses his wife up on some coke. Exactly. If, if either of them deserve cocaine, it's obviously Catherine. It's true. And and he would have been told, oh, yes, you have mommy issues. And guess what? Yes. Would have, would have been right. Would have fixed all this. But no. Right. You want a skinny wife who enjoys taking care of 10 children and cleaning your house? Please give her amphetamines. Like, (laughs) you cannot just be mean to her and then expect her to do everything. You can, but it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Cocaine works. Listen to me, people. (laughs) It's science. That's right. That's right. If if we learned anything from the Freud episode, it's that cocaine as a science works. Absolutely. (laughs) Okay. So anyway, his wife's at home bumming out real hard. But Charles sort of refuses to slow down. He is famous now. He enjoys his socializing. And he's just going to do it without her. He just resigns himself to the fact that he has a wife he hates, who he thinks is ugly, and uh, who he's comfortable emotionally abusing. And that's just going to be his life. That is, of course, obviously, the story takes a turn here. Of course, until 1857, when he's 45... And he meets a 17-year-old actress named Nellie Turnin. Immediately, he's smitten. This 45-year-old father of 10, super creep, starts sleeping with a 17-year-old actress. Father of 10. Can you imagine running across that Tinder profile? (laughs) (laughs) I know. No, I can't. And also being 45 and having 10 children. Holy shit. Yeah, right? That's so many children. That's having a kid every four years since the day you were born. I mean, the math kind of shakes out differently. It's like one every 18 months since you're 20 or so. But I'm averaging, but yes, <laughs> you, you get what I'm saying. Anyway, he strikes up this affair. 
he moves out of the bedroom with his wife. He writes this long letter to her maid. It's Wait, to her maid? Yes. And she's like, hey, he's like, Anne, which is the maid's name. You need to move all of my belongings to this other room. And also, you need to move this dresser up against the door so my wife can never enter my new bedroom. And um, it would be super great if you could also move my entire bathroom and create a physical barrier so I never have to see my wife again. At the same time, he begins plotting how he, he will escape his marriage without damaging his reputation. This is Victorian England. He is writing about families and wholesome family structures and the ideal family. Like the God blesses everyone. Yes. In the Christmas Carol. Yes. He's like the the writing the poster children for the idealized version of what family values should look like. Mm-hmm. And he's like, how can I go fuck this 17-year-old without messing up my publicity? Right. Because divorce was just like not a thing that happened then. Yeah. So he, for a year, carries on this clandestine relationship with Nellie. And then Catherine is like, hey, I sort of found out that you were fucking a teenager. What's up with that? Instead of responding to Catherine in a normal way, he starts gaslighting her hard. And he doesn't just gaslight her. He starts telling everybody he knows that his wife, Catherine, is jealous, delusional, potentially insane. And by... 1858, so within a year, Charles has decided it's impossible for him and Catherine to continue living together in the same house. He wrote, I believe my marriage has been for years and years as miserable a one as ever was made. I believe that no two people were ever created with such an impossibility of interest, sympathy, confidence, sentiment, tender union of any kind between them as there is between my wife and me. He concluded his letter by accusing Catherine of, quote, the most miserable weaknesses and jealousies. Her mind has, at times, been certainly confused. Who does he write this letter to? A friend, a publisher. And then he's like, I'm about to crank it up a notch. It's time to end my marriage. And the only way I'm going to be able to do this and maintain my reputation is if I get Catherine admitted to an insane asylum. He could have just done it the old-fashioned way. And had somebody knock her off. Yeah. So I'm using the term insane asylum not to be culturally inappropriate or to be ableist. This is like the the language she was using at the time. It is the term for the place at the time. He decides he's going to end his marriage with all of the dramatic flair of a writer who believes that he can control the narrative of his life in the same way he controls the narrative of his books. And so he takes out multiple advertisements and multiple newspapers and writes that Catherine is, quote, insane, that she is ending their marriage, and he tries to get her institutionalized. He's, wait, he's taking out ads in the paper? Yes. Is this, this is, I'm trying to imagine the equivalent today. Is it like somebody who's like posting on Facebook? Yeah, yeah. Like long rants. Yes. Putting all their business out there. Mm -hmm. So sloppy. And then he tries to pull some strings and get this sort of like acquaintance he knows who's these superintendent of the Manor House Asylum. It's this man named Thomas Tuke. He tries to get him to, quote, certify Catherine's insanity. But then when Thomas Tuke is like, she's not insane, you're abusive. Dickens then starts writing publicly that Tuke is, quote, a wretched being and a medical donkey. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. This is sounding more and more like Facebook by the minute. Okay. Yeah, that's right. I didn't get my way. One out of five stars. These donkey doctors out here. 
So at some point during all of this, Charles manages to convince Catherine to leave the family home. And just like she ends up taking one child with her. And she left the rest of the children at home with Charles and her sister, Georgina. She got an extra sister? She's Yeah, she had two sisters. Mary's dead, so Georgina's filling in. Okay, got it. Georgina ends up caring for the youngest kids who still lived at home, like for the rest of their lives. Charles is continuing his professional career. This doesn't face him at all. Catherine's gone. He's super famous, very wealthy. And he decides one of the ways he's going to use his money is to open a, um, quote, refuge for fallen women which uh, was a home for former sex workers. And his idea was that after a woman had been rescued, he would then, they would then be enabled to travel to Australia to begin a new life. He is saying, what am I going to do with my fortune? Mm-hmm. And he's like, I'm going to start a home for former sex workers mm-hmm. so they, they can then start a new life in Australia. To me, this sounds a lot like for fans of The Office out there, Robert California. Yes. Who, when the company is bought out, what is the CEO going to do? And he's like, I am going to travel through Asia and find former gymnasts, young girls with no education, and mentor them personally. Like, what the fuck? This is the creepiest way to spend a fortune. What happened to the other 17-year-old he was fucking? Oh, she's still here. So this is all happening. And, you know, this, to me, just highlights a pattern of control over young women that he really enjoys. So he spends months picking out the building, the bookcases, the books, the curtains, and even all of the clothing that these women are going to wear. And I guess one person could see this as like a charitable act by a man who was like, sensitive to the ails of the poor. It's a very specific kind of charity. It's though. a very specific kind of charity. He's not to... feeding like hungry children. No, he's opening a home for vulnerable women who will then be reliant on him to start a new life. Specifically women who previously their job was to have sex for money. Mm-hmm. Got it. Mm-hmm. Still kicking it with Nellie. Catherine's gone. He's got all these published books. He decides the way that he's going to continue to make money now is to go back to his first love of being an actor. And he is going to perform, be a one-man show for his own novels, and travel Europe performing his own novels. To be fair, this makes him an international superstar. Skyrockets him to fame. Even bigger than it already did. People love it. It's a great idea. Very weird. It works? It works. I'm stunned. But there's one way that this isn't successful, and it's this. He says the N-word. No, they probably would have allowed him to continue graciously. He probably did. It was probably in there many times. Yeah. Yeah. Charles becomes obsessed with performing one scene from one novel. It's a scene that he enjoyed playing the most, and it's one of the most controversial. Do you know what this scene is? Controversial scene. Okay, so it's got to be something about his trauma with his mom. Um... Tell me the book. Oliver Twist. Is it? It's not the, please, mer- sir, may I have some more? It's not. Okay, so it's something with the mom. Uh, no, I don't know what it is. It is the brutal death of the sex worker Nancy at the hands of her lover, as depicted in the book Oliver Twist. Yikes. Okay, okay. So he pitches this, you know, to the director, the producers, even his kids, And they were like, yo, do not perform that scene. Skip it. Skip it. This is a family show. You write family novels. Do not act that out on stage. 
And he's like, I have to. I literally cannot overcome the urge to do this. That is exactly right. Oh, my God. When I say obsession, let me tell you about this obsession. So this is a scene that he performed 30 times. And apparently it was the way that he performed it. It was so violent that afterwards people in the audience commented on being traumatized. And he would have to go lay down on a couch backstage, drink a glass of champagne, wait until, quote, his heart rate returned to normal, and then go out and finish the performance. He had to take a break afterwards because he worked himself up too much. Yes. There's an article um, that I forgot the title of, but I will link it in the show notes, that I pulled this quote from. It said, quote, It is almost as if Dickens had released a genie from the bottle of whose sexually violent existence he had been scarcely aware. Indeed, he liked to joke about his, quote, murderous instinct and his reenactment of the killing. Quote, I have a vague sensation, he said, of being wanted as I walk about the streets. What the fuck? He's just like, I've got this killer inside of me. Yeah. By the way, I started a home for sex workers, but let me show you this murderous rage that I have to reenact every single night as part of this performance. Exactly. Yikes. He ends up having a stroke while performing this scene. Holy shit. (laughs) No way. Yeah, and this ends his career as a touring performer. Wait, so the 30 times is not like there was too much controversy after 30 times. After 30 times, he has a stroke and can't do it anymore? Yeah, yeah. Well, he can't do it on stage anymore because there are accounts of multiple people catching him performing the scene alone in his own garden. No. Yes. This is some serial killer shit right here. It is. So it's 1869. He's 57. The next year, while visiting his lover, Nellie, who's 31 at this point, and then he's 58, he collapses while they're getting it on. <laughs> That's part of it. The stroke really fucked him up. <laughs> he, he didn't have the endurance he had before. Nellie arranges for his unconscious but still alive body to be transported back to his home where they place him on the floor of his dining room. And the next day with his, some of his children and also his housekeepers, (laughs) odd detail, surrounding him, he dies in his sleep. Oh, they don't bother like calling a doctor at this point. They're like, oh, he's gone. He's gone. Yeah. Yeah. So his death is pretty universally mourned by the public, right? He's young. He's 58. Mm -hmm. He has a whole funeral. It is what it is. And today, he's still considered one of the best Victorian authors of all time. Yeah, and still, it's never been proven that he killed any sex workers roaming the streets at night. Yeah, but he sure did know how to write about that in detail. And he sure knew how to take inspiration from the rest of his life. He was certainly prolific, and his writings had an impact on culture and history, and there were absolutely good things that he did in his life in pursuit of social justice, some of them sketchy. But for his unapologetic cruelty to his wife, his attempts to have her institutionalized and his slander of her in public, his affairs, his deep-rooted misogyny and need to control women— Not to mention the absolute hypocrisy of someone whose brand was that of like a proper Victorian, while also then himself abusing and cheating on his wife. Charles Dickens is not my hero. Man, this is going to make really fun 
dinner table conversation at Christmas. <laughs> I know, right? Folks can watch that movie. Isn't it a movie now? It's been made into a movie. A Christmas Carol? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So many times. Muppets made one. Oh, that's right. That's right. There's yeah. There's one in the 70s. You know what? Here's a pro tip for the holiday season. Mm-hmm. Throw on the Muppets Christmas Carol. Yes. And then talk about how it is likely Charles Dickens abused, but likely murdered a sex worker. Yeah. At least at least one. I feel like there's got to be like this whole forensic thing you could do, try to track down his victims. Because this is some real... like. The reenacting of the murders in his garden to himself. Yeah. After he has the stroke and he and it like it ruins his life. Like that's some dedication that does not manifest in any healthy ways. I, right, exactly. I listen to enough true crime podcasts to know that the reenactment or like the reengagement of that behavior never means anything good. Yeah. Okay. So go home. Put on the Muppets version. Ruin Christmas. Ruin Christmas. And when you're done with that, put on our Santa Claus episode and yes. ruin it again. St. Nicholas episode. One of my favorites. I forgot about that one. It is so good. And you know what? We're giving you this advice in October so you can get a head start on it. Start exactly. planning now. Start this, your Christmas shopping. Yeah, yeah. And start your Christmas planning. You don't want this to be a last minute decision. We have Easter Bunny and St. Patrick episodes. If people are looking for ways to ruin other holidays for their family forever... Until next week, where can they find us? They can find us on social media at Your Heroes Pod or on our website at MeetYourHeroesPodcast.com. Yep. And please like, share, rate, review, spread the word, tell your friends. And until next week. Don't be a hero. Don't be a hero. Bye. Bye.